All right. Well, uh, it's a joy to be with you once again. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And uh, while you're turning there, let's, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we study His Word. Oh, Father, we thank You that You are a God who speaks. That You are a God who... Um, amidst all of the chaos and confusion of this world, um, has revealed yourself. Uh, As you did to Elijah through a still, small voice, uh, you are the God who has given us your word uh, to speak clearly and um, powerfully into our lives if we will listen. And so, God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, uh, that you would give us hearts to respond, that, that if there are any among us who are laid low um, in, in the wallows of depression, that even now you would lift us up and encourage us and give us the strength that we need to serve and follow you faithfully. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, today we are going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 19, which is part two of a three-part series on the life of Elijah. Uh, So I think it was a couple months ago that I was last here and we began this series um, and we looked at uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, which is sort of the beginning of uh, at least the portion of Elijah's life that's covered in the Bible. Um, And and that period covered a, it was a three and a half year period of drought. So the beginning of chapter 17, Elijah shows up and proclaims to, to King Ahab and Jezebel, who have wickedly turned away from the Lord, have led Israel toward Baal worship, that the Lord will bring about a drought, that it will not rain, there will be no dew on the land for the coming years, until Elijah says so. And then the end of chapter 18 uh, was the the sending of rain, the the conclusion of this devastating drought upon the land. Um, And and throughout this period, uh, we noticed there was this just unusual outpouring of the miraculous. Uh, There was not only the the drought itself, um, but there was also the fact that Elijah, at the beginning of the drought, is fed by ravens. God miraculously causes birds to to bring him bread and meat every morning and evening. Uh, And then after that, Elijah gets up and he goes to Zarephath, and there was the, the widow who lived there. This is ironically right in the home territory of Jezebel, um, and and the, the famine caused by the drought is very severe, and this woman is about to starve to death with her son, and yet God miraculously provides food for them throughout this period. The, the jar of flour never runs out, the jug of oil never runs dry. Uh, and, then, and then during this period as well, the woman's son gets sick and dies. And through Elijah, the, the child is brought back to life. He is raised up. Uh, And then finally, Elijah goes back and we have this showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and these 450 prophets of Baal. Um, And we see that Baal is powerless, does nothing, and God sends down fire, which burns up the offering and and all of the rest. And and, and one of the things we talked about, so there's, there's miracle after miracle, but the real point is not so much the miracles themselves, 
right? The point is not, you know, if I, if I can just be more like Elijah, well then, you know, the, I can have that jar of flour and it's never going to run out and the jug of oil will never run dry. You know, the point is not, you know, when I'm in an apologetic debate, well, we just need to go set up some altars and, and pray and God is going to send down fire. Um, but, but the real focus, the real point is wonderfully summed up by the, the widow in Zarephath. When, when she says, after her son is raised to life, she says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. You know, the main point is that these miracles, these demonstrations of the power of Yahweh point are meant to point us to the trustworthiness of His Word. And that's why, you know, the way I titled the, that last sermon was Yahweh's Word and Baal's Silence. And when you read those chapters, it just stands out that again and again, Yahweh is a God who speaks. Everything Elijah does is done by the Word of Yahweh. Baal, on the other hand, it says, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so the miracles, one of the functions of miracles is to point us to the trustworthiness of God's word. And, and I talked a little bit last time about the fact that we see that in the life of Moses and Joshua. There's many miracles, and one of the things was to point to the trustworthiness of God's word, which was given through Moses. And then also in the life of Jesus and the apostles, right? There's many, many miracles, and yet one of the functions of those miracles was to point to the trustworthiness of the New Testament, uh, to confirm the word of the Lord. Um, and now today, as we go into chapter 19, this emphasis on God's word will continue. Uh, and today, I, I would title this sermon, uh, Yahweh's Word and Elijah's Depression. And what we will see is that Elijah slides down into, he spirals into a deep depression. And then it is God speaking to him in a whisper, in a still small voice that ultimately lifts him out of it. Now the fact that Today's sermon would be about Elijah's depression um, is rather surprising if you haven't read this story and you know where we finished at the end of chapter 18, uh, because chapter 18 finishes on a great high point, you know, really the greatest victory of Elijah's ministry. Um, there he was standing on Mount Carmel over against, there's a king, there's 450 prophets of Baal, there's 400 prophets of Asherah, there's, there's all the people of Israel. And then, in the midst of this showdown between him and Baal, Yahweh answers by fire, fire descends from heaven, all the people fall flat on their face, they say, Yahweh, He is God, Yahweh, He is God. They seize the prophets of Baal, they execute them. And then Elijah goes up on Carmel and he prays. And for the first time in three and a half years, rain is sent. And Ahab seems deeply impressed by this. He gets in his chariot to ride back to Jezreel. In fact, Elijah outruns him. And that's a miracle in and of itself. He runs something like 20 miles to Jezreel. And you can just imagine that Elijah at this point is no doubt expecting this is when the Lord is going to turn 
the kingdom, the hearts of the people back to himself. This will be the restoration of Israel. And you can imagine the hope that he felt. Right? You can imagine this being sort of the, the highest of highs in the life of Elijah. And yet, we find in chapter 19 that the highest of highs is immediately followed by the lowest of lows. And so we're going to go through this chapter together. Um, I've divided it into five scenes. So we're just going to read one sort of scene at a time and talk about it and then go to the next one. And scene one is verses 1 through 3a, and it's Elijah runs. Elijah runs. So listen as I read 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through beginning of chapter of verse 3. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. So Ahab returns to Jezreel, where he and his wife Jezebel had some sort of second house and and he gets there and you can imagine Jezebel who's the rain has undoubtedly come through and and she who is an avid worshiper of Baal the storm god is thinking everything has gone well look Baal has sent rain we have won and then Ahab comes back and you can imagine him explaining to her what really happened that actually all the prophets of Baal were executed that they built an altar and Baal was powerless to do anything, and that actually it was Yahweh who sent down fire on the altar to Yahweh, and then the people executed the prophets of Baal, and that now Elijah is coming. And yet Jezebel, as we understand what kind of woman this was, she is a woman who is used to getting her way. She is a woman who is used to winning. She has married a king, And yet this king is now a worshiper of her God. And she has been systematically seeing to it that the prophets of Yahweh are being killed. And she's not about to change her ways in response to this. So as soon as she finds out, she writes a letter to Elijah who has come, undoubtedly hoping that Ahab is going to change. And she sends a letter to him swearing that she will see to it that he is dead by tomorrow. And Elijah, he receives this death threat. And somehow, this man, who previously had stood alone against a king, against a nation, against 450 prophets, somehow he receives this threat from this woman. And he feels like he can't stand against her. And he is full of fear, and he turns, and he runs. Now, on one level, it's understandable because she certainly meant it. This is certainly a dangerous woman. But this was a grave mistake. I mean, this is so different than than so much we have seen from Elijah. Because there's no, and the word of the Lord came to him and told him to depart. He, He just is afraid. And he turns and he runs. You know, it's, it's not that he thinks this is God's will. It's that he's overcome by fear. 
And, and how could this be? I mean, why is he so afraid here? And, and I think there's, there's really two reasons for this. Number one, there is something about Jezebel. I mean, she is a terrifyingly strong and evil woman. I mean, there is something about the way that evil is working through her that Elijah feels like he can stand against a nation, but not her. But, but secondly, and probably more significantly, it seems that a big part of the issue here is that God doesn't do what Elijah expected. To quote Sinclair Ferguson, it was as if Elijah has seen all these situations happening and he's trying to do sort of the divine calculus to figure out what's going to happen next. And, you know, he put two and two together and he made 22, as two and two can sometimes make. But he didn't realize that that was just not the way that God was putting things together. And so he gets there, you know, waiting for this, you know, just expecting things to turn out one way. And they don't turn out that way. Maybe he expected that the hearts of people would finally be softened, that Ahab would finally stand for the Lord. Maybe he expected that God would do more miracles, that there would be more of an outpouring of the miraculous to to stir the hearts of the people to sway Ahab, to take down Jezebel. Maybe he at least expected God to, you know, Come speak to him and tell him the plan. What was going to come next? But whatever happened, it wasn't what he was expecting. And in that moment, rather than standing firm in faith, it seems that Elijah was overcome by fear. And so he turns and he runs. And I think this prompts two questions for us. Number one, is there anything that you are running from? Is is there some sort of Jezebel in your life? Some some sort of situation that you just feel too afraid to face? You know, I think when that happens, it can be tempting to think, you know, this is the one thing I'm not going to do, but I'm going to go off and I'll serve God in all these other ways. I'll follow God in every way, except there's just this one thing I just don't feel like I can face. And the life of Elijah shows us very clearly when we don't face that obstacle that God has placed before us, that that we are called to face, well, everything else tends to just spiral down as well. Because this running, as we'll see, it leads to depression. Um, Secondly, how do you respond when God doesn't do what you expect? You know, it's fairly easy to trust God when he, when he does what we expect Him to do. But our faith is really tested when God doesn't do what we were expecting. You know, when like Elijah, we put two and two together and we think, okay, 22, and then that's not what happens. And that is when our faith is really tested. And so how will we respond in that moment? You know, I think one of the lies that we often believe that leads to wrong expectations, especially as American Christians who have enjoyed so much prosperity, so much comfort, so much protection, 
I think it's very easy for us to think, you know, if, if we just do the right things, things are supposed to work out. You know, we may not, we may hate the prosperity gospel and say, I don't believe that at all. And yet I think in all of us, there can reside that little bit of just expectation. You know, God, if, if I'm serving you faithfully, I'm not supposed to get that cancer diagnosis. You know, th- things are supposed to get easier in my life. And things are just, I'm, I'm supposed to have some measure of success for my kids or my family. I mean, things are supposed to turn out a certain way. And we just begin to presume and we get, begin to expect. And yet we have to take those expectations back to Scripture and say, God, what have you really promised? Um, and we have to be reminded that the way of Christ is a way of suffering. It is a lifelong battle. And that, in fact, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So we need to be guarded against having these fallen expectations that lead to lack of faith, that lead to fear, that lead to fleeing, whatever God has called us to be doing. So, scene one, Elijah runs. Now, scene two, Elijah prays. Look with with me back at verse three and four. So after Elijah was afraid and he arose and ran for his life, it says, and he came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So Elijah runs from Jezebel. He runs all the way something like 130 miles south to Beersheba in the very southern part of the promised land in Judah. He leaves his servant there, presumably for his servant's safety. And then he himself ventures another day's journey out into the wilderness. He finds a broom tree and he just lies down there and he prays. But this is not a prayer of hope or faith, but a prayer of hopelessness and gloom. He says, oh God, it is enough. I've come to the end of my rope. I've taken more than I can bear. And he says, oh now, oh Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. God, just let me die. What is the point of living? He he feels like a complete failure. I'm no better than my father's. I've, I've tried to work for the reform of Israel and it's all been wasted. It has all gone to nothing. All of my work has crashed and burned. And he's just spiraled down into the depths of despair and depression. And friends, obviously this is a very terrible place to be. But I think one thing it shows us is that it is possible for even the godliest of men to spiral into the deepest depression. I mean, if this can happen to Elijah, it can happen to us. And I think that's important for us for two reasons. Number one... Um, there are some of us who probably almost never have a blue day. You know, not, not every Christian is, is equally given to, you know, defits, to fits of depression. And maybe for you, it's really hard to understand how any real Christian could possibly be so low. Because as Christians, we have so much to be joyful in. And yet I think this example challenges us to be 
empathetic and to be understanding and to think about how do I come alongside my brothers and sisters who may be in my own church when they are feeling low. And so I want us to think about that, even if you don't struggle with depression. Well, what can you learn about how you can help other Christians who do? And, and consider on that point as well, you know, on one hand, the more we mature as Christians, I think the more we, we care less about things like my own health, my own comfort. And so those things become less likely to drive us into depression. But on the other side, the more you mature as a Christian, the more there can be other things that are greatly discouraging. You know, the more you long to see the glory of God and you long to see the church healthy and strong and you long to see people you know and love following Jesus. And the sadder it is when, when things don't seem to be going that way. Right? And so there's a way in which even as we mature as Christians, there are griefs that we will bear. Griefs that can at times even cause the, the most mature of Christians, guys like Charles Spurgeon, for example, who struggle with depression. And so we want to think about, well, what does the Lord have to say to Elijah in this situation? And how can that help us know how to care for one another? And then the other side, maybe you're here this morning and, and you are a Christian who struggles with depression. Maybe, you, maybe you're just feeling really low even today. And it's important that you see this chapter in the Bible because one of the lies of the devil is, you know, you're feeling that place and it's no real Christian could be like this. You must not be a Christian if you lack joy when look at all that God has done for you. And, and the devil comes and he wants to just sort of convince us. And, and really, when you're feeling depressed, that's the worst thing that can happen because the very hope that can be used to bring you out of it, the devil is just trying to cut that off. And so friend, again, see, Elijah was a godly man. He, he loved the Lord. He wanted to see the glory of God come and he was so agonized over the fact that this was not happening, that was one of the contributing factors that led him down into this depression. And so we need to understand this can happen to Christians. And so what is it that the Lord will say in response to this? Elijah praying that he might die. Well, let's, let's look at how the Lord responds. And we come to scene three. God sends food, verses 5 through 8. Verse 5, And so Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now the first thing to notice here, not only does God not answer Elijah's prayer to die, but God gives nourishment for life. And friends, we should praise God that sometimes 
he answers our prayers with no. You know, in fact, this prayer, God rejected so emphatically that Elijah became one of only two men in the history of the world who never died. So praise God that sometimes he says no when we pray for foolish things. Uh, But secondly, notice the tenderness of God. Here is Elijah just talking nonsense in, in this ugly, low place. And God doesn't just immediately come down and rebuke him. God gives him food and rest. And and I think this should be a reminder to us that we are both spiritual and physical beings. And God understands that. He, He has spiritual truth to share with Elijah, but first he ministers to Elijah's physical needs. And and I think this should remind us that, um, you know, when we are feeling depressed, it is not sub-Christian to do things like get rest, to um, eat healthy, to get exercise, to take care of physical needs because physical things can affect the way we feel. That's not denying the importance of the spiritual side, but that's just recognizing God has made us physical and spiritual beings that are interconnected and, you know, we should be mindful of our physical needs. But at the same time, notice in verse 7 that God sends the food because the journey is too great for you. And so God is meeting the physical needs, but he has a purpose. He has a journey for Elijah, and this journey is for Elijah to come and meet with God. It says that Elijah gets up and he travels 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And Horeb is really just another name for Sinai. It's the same mountain. So this is the very mountain where God in times past had met with his people and had given them the Ten Commandments and the law. In fact, this was the very same mountain where Moses, after Moses says, Oh God, show me your glory. And God had said, come up. And Moses had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he'd come up, and God had placed him in the cleft of the rock and covered over until God passed by and then removed his hand so Moses could see the the back parts of God. And so it is this same mountain that Elijah goes to. And it makes very clear, Elijah is going there to meet with God. He is going there because God has a message for him. And that tells us that in the midst of depression, on one hand, physical care is important. But all the physical care, all the medicines and doctors, even all of the best counseling can do nothing but put a band-aid over depression apart from the spiritual truth of Jesus. Right? It is the spiritual message of Jesus Christ that is the real key to lifting us out of that place of darkness and depression. Jesus is the one and only light who can shine into the recesses of real spiritual lowliness. And so when you're depressed, you need to hear from God. Right? Read His Word. Seek fellowship with believers who can tell you the truth of God. You need to hear from Him. And so Elijah gets up and he 
journeys to Horeb, and that brings us to scene four. God speaks. And this will, this will span verses 9 all the way through verse 18. Uh, rather than read the whole thing at the front, I'm going to kind of read it as we go through. So Elijah, he gets up, he travels 40 days and 40 nights, he comes to Horeb, and verse 9 says, there he came to a cave. In fact, this could possibly be translated, the cleft. It's, it seems very possible. This is the same place that Moses had met with God so many centuries before. So he comes to this cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's a not so subtle reminder. Why are you not in Jezreel? Why did you turn and flee from the place that you were supposed to be, the front lines of the battle? Why did you run? And Elijah says in verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I mean, Elijah is basically, he's exasperated. He says, God, have you not noticed that everything is spinning out of control? Have you not noticed your people have forsaken you? They've broken your covenant. They threw down your altars. They're killing your prophets. Have you not noticed I am the only one left and they want to kill me? I mean, he's basically saying, God, where have you been? Why have you not intervened? Why have you not done something? Why are you letting all these things spin out of control? And then look at how God responds. And picking up in verse 11. And God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So he summons Elijah to come out and stand before him. And right as Elijah is sort of getting ready to go out, it says, And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Right? You're thinking, this is God who rides on the cherubim, who comes swiftly in. The wind is coming. I mean, imagine a wind that's breaking rocks. I mean, this is sort of terrifying. This is spectacular. This is amazing. You think God is coming, but then it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. And you think, okay, this is the God before whom the, the mountains quake and the earth trembles. God is coming, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. And you think, okay, well, God appeared to Moses in the fire at the burning bush. God came down on Sinai centuries before in fire. This is the Lord coming. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper or a still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So somehow, Elijah understood that this wind and this earthquake and this fire, these miraculous, these spectacular, these dramatic means, that, that wasn't the way God was communicating with him. That, that was not the the thing, the medium through which God was coming. But somehow he hears this still small voice and he knows, okay, this is the Lord 
speaking. This is the means through which God is coming to reveal himself. And I think this is really a sort of visible illustration of a very important spiritual point that that God wants to convey to Elijah. I think God wants Elijah to understand that he is not only a God who comes and acts through the outwardly miraculous and spectacular, he's also the God who speaks in a still small voice. And it is a grave mistake to only look for God in the extraordinary and to fail to see God working in the ordinary, in the soft, in the quiet, and the things that that seem so normal. And yet those are the very things that God uses. Look, Look at what God goes on to say. Picking up in verse 13. So when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And that's such a profound statement. Elijah is basically saying, God, where are you? And Elijah says, no, 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 Elijah, where are you? What are you doing here? And Elijah goes on, he says, verse 14, and you know, God, I have been very jealous for you. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek to take my life, right? Things are spinning out of control, God. Verse 15, and the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What does that mean? Well, Elijah is saying, God, things are spinning out of control. And God says, no, I have already planned who is going to be the king of Syria. I've already planned who is going to be the king of Israel. In fact, I have already planned who is going to be the prophet that will take up your mantle after you and carry on the prophetic ministry. God has a plan for all of these things. He has everything totally under control. And Elijah is saying, well, look at all these evil things that are happening. What is going on? And God is saying, no, the people I will appoint, they will bring about justice. Right? The sword of Hazael will be unleashed, and if they escape from him, then the sword of Jehu will be unleashed, and if they escape from him, well, then there's Elisha and the spiritual judgment he will bring. Right? God is going to bring about justice. Don't be mistaken. Don't be confused. Don't be in doubt. And then finally, Elijah is like, and I'm the only one left. God, are you going to save your people? Have you noticed you're trying to kill me, and I'm the last one? And God says, no, there are 7,000 whom I have reserved, who have not bowed to Baal, who have not kissed him. And so what God is doing is he is assuring Elijah that, look, I am not a God who is limited only to situations where I send down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. And when I raise people from the dead, I am a God who is working sovereignly in every detail of life. I am bringing all things 
to pass according to the counsel of my will. God is helping him to see that he is a God who is always right there. And so friends, when when you are in that place of depression and you're asking, where is God? Well, the answer is, God is already right here, working all things together. There's not a sparrow that falls to the ground apart from God's will. All the hairs on our heads are numbered. And even when we can't see God, even when we can't hear God, God is working all the same. And when you're in that place of depression and you feel like you are just surrounded by nothing but darkness, that you're all alone, that you are the only one left, well, this passage reminds us that actually there are 7,000 other bright rays of hope shining all around you, and you just need to pray that God would open your eyes to see the grace that He is giving and the things that He is doing that you just haven't seen yet. And thirdly, I think this passage shows us that sometimes the very darkness causing us to ask, where's God? Is actually the most important thing God is doing in our lives. You know, think for a moment about the cross. You know, if there was ever a moment when it would have seemed like everything was spinning out of control, I mean, that was it. Right here, God comes down to earth in human flesh, and God Himself is betrayed by one of His own disciples. God is arrested, He is falsely accused. He is mocked. He is beaten. He is stripped naked. He is condemned to die as a criminal. He's nailed to a cross. He's lifted up. And nothing comes. Elijah doesn't come to save him. He hangs there. And then he dies. And imagine if you're the disciples. I mean, it seems like everything is going wrong. I mean, it seems like darkness has just come and swallowed up the light. And yet, really... The Bible tells us that actually Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews were gathered together against Jesus to do only what God's hand and God's purpose had planned before to be done. Every detail was unfolding according to God's sovereign plan. And in fact, it was out of the darkness of the grave that God brought life and immortality to light through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So friends, when we are in that place of depression, we can remember that we serve a God who through the death of His own Son, in what seemed like the worst thing that could possibly happen, has brought about life and forgiveness for us. And so we can be confident that even when we cannot see God, when we do not understand what He is doing or why He is letting these things happen, that He is in fact working all things together for good for those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. And the great question for us is not, God, where are you? The question is, where are we? Are we where God has called us to be? Just like God says to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then when he finally speaks to him and gives him a commandment, the first word in verse 15, he says, go. 
Elijah, go back, go back, go back, go and do what I have called you to do. Right? And so we should not wallow in that place of depression. We are called to get up and to go and to be where God has called us to be, to trust God and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that brings us to scene five. So we've seen Elijah runs, Elijah prays, God feeds him, God speaks, and now scene five, Elijah obeys. Look at verses 19 through 21. So, Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now the first thing to notice here is that Elijah does in fact get up out of that cave and go and do what God commanded him to do. Right? And so the, the word of the Lord coming in this still small voice pulls Elijah out of that depressed state, restores him to ministry, to doing what God has called for him. And also, through Elijah's obedience, God provides him with something that he desperately needed, which was real spiritual companionship. Through obeying the Lord, he, he now receives Elisha as his disciple who is will be with them until the very end, who is totally committed, who is of like mind and like heart. And so Elijah has this wonderful gift of spiritual companionship. And I think this should remind us that it is in the midst of obedience that God will always provide for our needs. Right? Whatever God calls us to do, He will provide what we really need. Secondly, this picture of Elisha following Elijah is a wonderful example of discipleship. Elisha is evidently a very wealthy young man. He's got 12 yoke of oxen. He's out there plowing. And, and while he's out there, Elijah comes by and just throws his cloak on him and keeps walking. And Elisha <laughs> looks around and runs after him. And, and he understands what that's saying. That's saying, follow me. And, and he's willing to do it. He says, I'm going to follow you, but just let me go home first and like, say goodbye to my family. It seems like a reasonable request. And, and Elijah says, okay. And so Elisha goes back. And then he says bye to his family. He literally takes his oxen, slaughters them, takes the equipment and to, as fuel for a fire, burns and cooks the oxen, and he throws a big party, invites everybody to come. So they eat. He says goodbye, and he leaves. And think about that. Elisha has literally burned and eaten his old way of life. I mean, there is no turning back. This is radical discipleship. This is saying goodbye to his old life to now follow Elijah for the rest of his life. And the challenge for us is, are we following Jesus like that? I mean, are we really willing to put Jesus first? You know, to, to follow him with all of our heart? With, with all of our life. You know, Jesus himself seems to kind of refer to this in Luke chapter 9. 
verses 61 and 62, when there was a man who comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, I will follow you, but first, let me go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So just like Elisha's out there plowing, but then he wants to go say goodbye, it's almost like Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you have to be like Elisha following Elijah, except I demand an even more radical commitment and allegiance. And what a challenge to us, right? Obviously, Jesus doesn't literally call all of us to burn our possessions and go be missionaries on the other side of the world, but... He calls for that same level of commitment, that same putting him first in our heart, living for him, following him in all of our life. And so we began by considering the temptation to run, the fact that there will be those things, that those Jezebels we just want to run from. And yet we come to the end of this chapter and we see an exhortation to follow. Follow the Lord with total commitment wherever He is leading us to go. Uh, We've seen how Elijah's lack of faith when God didn't meet his expectations led to fear, which led to flight, which spiraled into depression and despair. Then we've also seen how after the Lord pulled him out of it, Elijah's obedience resulted in God providing the restoration and the companionship he needed. And the way in which Elijah's faith was strengthened, it it wasn't by seeing another miracle. It wasn't by seeing the spectacular. It was through the Word of God, even in a still, small voice, and through that reminder that God is working even when we cannot see Him. And so the great question for our lives is not, where's God, but where are you? Are you where God has called you to be? Are you walking in His will? Are you following Jesus like Elisha followed Elijah? Are we seeking first God's kingdom and His righteousness? And rather than being overtaken by fear and worry and whatever those things are that would, would cause discouragement, that would want, make us want to turn around and run away, May we trust the Lord and pray that He would open our eyes to to see His providential care all around us. As Jesus said, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to its stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So friends, 
May we use this truth to fight fear, to fight depression, and to follow Jesus wherever he is calling us to go. Let's pray. Amen. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even when we feel low, you have given us such reason to rejoice. God, we thank you that even when we feel low, um, you understand that and you help us in our weakness. And we thank you that we can look to Jesus on the cross as the ultimate example of the way that in your almighty power you can work even evil for good. And Lord, that gives us such hope. God, we pray that you would help us to trust you and to follow you in every facet of our lives. And Lord, we pray these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.